Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 637 for the 7th of April, 2019. This week, which is better, Adobe Lightroom or Photoshop? The answer to that question is, it depends. Mainly, it depends on what you need to do, but that's not all. We'll try to sort out which is the right option to use and when. In short circuits, the operators of the electric grid and other utilities are under nearly constant attack. So far, most of the attacks have been limited to the IT network, but critical infrastructure is at risk. If you've noticed that sometimes the Windows File Explorer takes far too much time to reveal all of the files in a folder, let's find out why and what can be done to fix the problem. In spare parts, only on the website, the time is coming when you'll approach a fast food restaurant's drive-up window and be greeted by name. And a company that helps people find lower-cost auto insurance online has used their technology to create a list of the 25 cities that have the highest rates of drivers with drunk driving convictions. Digital photography puts us in complete control of our images. Besides being able to take an unlimited number of photographs without concern for the cost, we have tools that give us more capabilities than even the most talented darkroom artist had when film was king. And now perhaps our primary problem is figuring out which tool to use. Although Adobe is the clear leader for professional photographers and serious amateurs, there are many other applications that operate as plugins for Adobe's tools as standalone applications, or both. We've looked at some of those previously, so today we'll be concerned with the best workflow through Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Lightroom CC, Adobe Lightroom Classic CC, and Adobe Camera Raw. Each of these has strengths, and you'll create better images with less effort when you see the differences. One thing that's important to understand is that Adobe Camera Raw and Adobe Lightroom Classic CC have identical editing capabilities. That's why every Adobe Camera Raw update is accompanied by an Adobe Lightroom Classic CC update. The only differences are their user interfaces and the fact that Lightroom Classic uses a database to store edits instead of placing the information in sidecar files the way Camera Raw does. Maybe it's also important to understand that no photo editing application can open a RAW file from the camera or write changes back to the RAW file. RAW files are simply digital representations of the data from the camera's sensor. If you want to make changes to the image represented by that data, the file needs to be run through a demosaicing process, then presented to the editing application. Because RAW files from cameras are proprietary, no application can write changes back to them. That's one good reason for converting RAW files to Adobe's digital negative or DNG format when you import them from the camera. Adobe invented the DNG format and made it available for anyone who wants to use it. Leica, Hasselblad, and Pentax use the DNG format for their cameras. Nikon, Canon, and Sony still use their own proprietary formats. 
When importing images into Lightroom Classic, you can either maintain the proprietary formats or convert them to DNG on import. Whether to maintain the raw format or convert to DNG is a contentious subject. I'm going to come down on all sides of the issue and say this. It doesn't really matter. Most applications can write changes to DNG files, but they have to create sidecar files for raw files. So what? Well, either way, the changes are recorded. My preference is DNG files, but occasionally I forget to do the conversion, and it's not a big deal. It's a typical non-issue, in fact, the kind of thing that photographers like to argue about. And in addition to all of the various RAW formats of DNG, there's JPEG. JPEG files are processed in the camera, and that process sharpens the image and applies compression that discards some of the data that was captured by the sensor. You may have heard you should always shoot RAW format. Well, that's wrong. You may also have heard that you should always shoot JPEG. That's wrong, too. RAW is the format to choose if you want to have the greatest range of options for processing on the computer. You'll probably also want to use the Adobe RGB color space because it has a larger gamut than the sRGB that's usually used for JPEG. RAW files, though, have to be processed because an unmodified RAW or DNG file will appear flat and slightly unsharp. It's up to the user to make the best possible image. JPEG is the right choice if you want to reduce processing time on the computer and you're willing to accept image processing by the camera. JPEG files are also a lot smaller, and a full-size, high-quality JPEG is virtually indistinguishable from the output of a RAW file. So choose RAW or DNG if you want to maintain complete control. Choose JPEG if you're willing to give up some control. There's one other reason for shooting JPEG. Journalists and sports photographers often choose JPEG because the images need no additional processing, and that saves time. Some cameras offer the ability to save both RAW and JPEG simultaneously. That's a good choice if you need fast access to the images, mainly for sharing while you're on vacation. But you do want to retain the capabilities of RAW files. So with that out of the way, let's take a look at workflow through the various Adobe applications. You're going to find a lot of images on TechBiter Worldwide this week, www.techbiter.com. Be sure to check that out, and you can click any of the smaller images to see a larger view. Adobe wants the cloud-centric Lightroom to win the race, but I'm still uncomfortable with storing all of my files in any location other than my own computer. That's why I use Lightroom only for images from my mobile phone and iPad. And once the images from those devices have been synced to my home computer, I save them with the Original Plus Settings option to a temporary directory on the computer, and then import them into Lightroom Classic. Adobe also offers Bridge, which works well with Photoshop. Bridge, though, isn't connected to a database, and it's been deprecated by Adobe. No future versions of Bridge will be released. So depending on Bridge as the primary organizational tool isn't really a very good idea. Instead, my recommendation is to import all images into Lightroom Classic and use it as your primary organizational tool. When images are in Lightroom Classic, you can perform all of the macro edits, things like cropping, brightness, contrast, color balance, right there, and pass the images that need pixel level or micro edits off to Photoshop. Many images need only Lightroom Classic edits, but there are images that must be passed to Photoshop. Let's consider some examples. 
In addition to adjusting color, brightness, and a lot of other factors, Lightroom Classic can remove some image imperfections with the spot removal tool. I created a picture of a pear on a dish of pasta. Now, this wasn't an artistic shot, just something as a test shot for the camera. It also turned out to be a good example of what Lightroom Classic's spot removal tool can do. I hadn't selected the pear as a photographic model. I selected it for lunch, so I didn't care much about bumps, tears, and other imperfections. But they were a problem in the photograph. The spot removal tool sets a pin for each imperfection that the user chooses to fix. You'll see those pins represented as small dots on an image that's on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. Each of the spots shows where I've used spot removal. On a companion image, the pins are hidden, and the pair is much more appealing. The point here is that Lightroom Classic may be sufficient for what would normally be considered pixel-level editing. Removing power lines from a sky or blemishes from a person's skin, bare spots from a lawn. These are all good examples of what can be done with this tool. There's no harm in starting with Lightroom, even if you know that you'll need to pass the image to Photoshop for more advanced editing. More advanced corrections are candidates for Photoshop, where the clone tool can be used in conjunction with layers to fix difficult problems. When Lightroom sends an image to Photoshop, it creates a full-resolution TIFF file that can include, at your option, all of the changes that you've made so far in Lightroom. I took a picture of Chloe Cat sitting on my lap, but I had my feet up and my ugly foot was visible in the background. I didn't like that. The image was captured on an iPad with Adobe Lightroom, so it was already in DNG format. On the iPad, I was able to crop the image so that my foot was no longer in the frame. Well, that's okay, but I really wanted more of the image, more of the cat. So it was actually time to move that image into Photoshop. By using the clone stamp tool on a new layer, I was able to remove my foot from the image, but then I noticed that there's a lamp behind the cat and it appears to be growing out of her neck. A little additional work with the clone stamp tool removed the lamp. Here's another good example of what you can do. Nearly a decade ago, I photographed a butterfly at the Franklin Park Conservatory, one of my favorite locations in Columbus. I was using a Canon PowerShot G12. That's an advanced point-and-shoot camera. The image has some foliage with blown-out highlights. Additionally, I thought the butterfly would work better lower in the image and moved toward the left. Cropping the image, color correction, contrast, and such were all easily taken care of in Lightroom Classic, but the butterfly had a damaged wing. Fixing the wing is not the kind of enhancement that can be made in Lightroom or Lightroom Classic, so right-clicking the image reveals an option to edit it in Photoshop. After creating a new layer for the correction in Photoshop, I brushed the changes into the file. Some of the new detail in the front wing comes from the wing in the back, and some of the new detail comes from other locations in the front wing. I thought it worked pretty well. When the editing process is complete in Photoshop, saving the file returns it automatically to Lightroom Classic. And there are some extreme cases. Sometimes an image needs so many changes, or the changes are so detailed, that Photoshop is the only possible choice. I started with a photograph of a barn in Ohio's Amish country. I liked the picture when I took it, but it wasn't as appealing when I saw it on the screen. There's a large sign in front of the barn. There are power lines, a power pole, fence posts in the foreground, an ugly white extension to the barn on the right, a house in the background, power lines there, and more. <sighs> 
Lightroom Classic took care of the color contrast and cropping, but I needed Photoshop for the rest of the work. Now, this is a good example of work that I generally don't do with photographs, and I wouldn't make so many changes if my objective was to create a journalistic representation of Amish country. This is artistic, not journalistic. But either way, Lightroom Classic isn't the right tool for the task. The changes were extensive, and I spent at least eight hours on the image over a period of several weeks. You'll see the before and after pictures on the TechBiter Worldwide website. There are some posts around a culvert. Well, the posts, at least most of them, and the culvert itself could have been removed in Lightroom. But one of the posts extends into some brickwork. The bricks needed to be cloned to match the pattern of the surrounding bricks. There's a power pole with power lines across the road. They were easy to remove because they didn't obscure any important details in the background. But the power lines that extended across the barn eh, needed some pretty careful cloning to be hidden. Because removing the power pole cut through the garage in the background, I decided to remove the garage and the house by just cloning in some grass and bushes back there. There was a guy wire from the power pole. It was a little bit of a problem because it did pass in front of the barn. I had expected the most intricate part of the process to be removing a sign in front of the barn, because that would mean I'd have to clone the barn, the foundation, the roof, and parts of the white building at the right of the barn. Well, that was a pretty intricate process, but... What actually turned out to be the most intricate part of the process was actually removing the white building. That involved cloning a large part of the barn's side, some of the front trim, trim around the corner, and some sky in the background. Once that was complete, I realized that a window had been hidden behind the sign, and the barn didn't look right with just three windows, so I had to clone a window. The final cleanup involved removing a couple of mailboxes, a traffic sign, and a shadow from the now-missing power pole and posts. So the conclusion here is that, as powerful as Lightroom Classic is, it's not the right tool for every change you might want to make to an image. That's why Adobe includes both, along with Camera Raw, Lightroom, Spark, Bridge, and Portfolio. Your mission is to select the right tool for the job. In short circuits, warnings have been issued for several years about cyber threats aimed at various utilities. The warnings, unfortunately, have been accurate and the number of attacks on utilities are continuing to increase. Research conducted by Vectra, a developer of protective applications for utilities, says that most cyber attacks in the utilities sector occur inside enterprise IT networks, not in the critical infrastructure. Not yet, anyway. The report says that most companies fail to find threats and that in the past three years, Russian government cyber actors targeted government entities and multiple critical infrastructure sectors in the United States. Targets include energy, nuclear, water utilities, along with commercial facilities, aviation, and critical manufacturing businesses. Once the attackers are inside the IT network, they can move laterally, and that's where the most serious threats exist. The report says that threat actors who gained access to the IT network then used privileged credentials to access the victim's domain controller, typically using Remote Desktop Protocol, or RDP. On the domain controller, they can use batch scripts to find host devices, users, and a lot of other critical information is also exposed at that point. 
Attacks such as these often occur over a period of many months or even years, according to Vectra. The process is slow and quiet to avoid detection. The initial access to the IT network is usually accomplished by using malware and spear phishing strategies to steal administrative credentials. Last week, I described an attack that infected hundreds of thousands of ASUS computers in an attempt to infect just 600 computers. There's been no indication of who conducted that attack or which 600 machines were targeted. The Vectra report is worrisome. The full report is available without charge from the Vectra website. You'll find a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Microsoft gave Windows Vista an amazing capability that is still present in Windows 10. It's a feature that can examine a directory, determine what kinds of files are there, and then select the best Explorer template to use when displaying files in that directory. It's really quite clever, but it can also seriously slow the process of opening a directory. The problem is that the evaluation process takes time. The more files you have in a folder, the longer the evaluation process takes. You'd think the process would run just once, select a template, and then stop fiddling with it. Well, that's true as long as you never add another file to the directory. When new files are added, automatic folder type discovery runs again. If you have a folder with a lot of files, the discovery process drags on while a green line expands slowly across the top of the screen to show progress. The solution involves telling Windows one of a couple of things. The kinds of files in the directory, music files or picture files, for example, or general items. If you set the directory to General Items, the automatic folder type discovery should stop running, and that, perhaps surprisingly, is the right answer. I had tried setting the directory where I keep images from the digital cameras to pictures. That didn't speed the process. The File Explorer still ran the discovery process, apparently looking for thumbnail images to display. But I don't need the Windows File Explorer to show me thumbnails. And if I do, I can quickly turn them on by using the View menu. When I need to work with photographs, I'll use Lightroom's or Bridges thumbnails. So I thought maybe a better option would be to set the directory and all of the subdirectories to general items. Aha! Bingo! Another directory where this is important is the computer's downloads directory. By default, the download directory is located at C colon backslash users, then backslash and your username backslash downloads. However, many users don't want downloaded files to fill up the boot drive. I, for example, use G colon backslash downloads instead. Because the contents of this directory change frequently, turning the detection process off makes a lot of sense. The process is easy enough. Navigate to the folder in File Explorer, right-click it, choose Properties from the Context list, and then select the Customize tab from the Properties panel. Change the Optimize this folder option to General Items. You might also want to apply the change to all subdirectories. Then click OK. There's also an Apply button, but you'd need to click it only if you want to apply the change and then make other modifications to the directory's properties. Then, when you open a previously slow directory, you should see a nearly immediate file list. 
And you'll see immediate information in spare parts only on the website. This week, the time is coming when you'll approach a fast food restaurant's drive-up window and be greeted by name. And a company that helps people find lower-cost auto insurance online has used their technology to create a list of the 25 cities that have the highest rates of drivers with drunk driving convictions. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.